Well, good morning. It is a uh, it is a privilege to be with you this morning. And as Russell said, I, I you know I, I count him a friend and uh, met him for the first time a couple of months before uh, he planted near town church. And so I've gotten to journey with him over the years, watching what God's doing in and through and among you. And so to get to participate at, at a at a closer um, proximity is a real joy. It's good to be here. Part of Advent Conspiracy, this is week three, and we're discussing this week, what does it mean to give more? For worshiping fully and spending less, then what does it look like as God's people to be called to give more? And uh, I I think that this is an interesting uh, topic, challenge, as a communicator this morning, because we live in a culture right now that we give a lot in, in a lot of ways. That in the Christmas season in America, $600 billion will be spent on Christmas. $600 billion in the U.S. this year on Christmas-related realities. And uh, as we spend $600 billion, I I was confronted with this staggering statistic. Uh, Only 1% of the goods produced and purchased, only 1% of the goods produced and purchased will still be in use six months from now. 1%. That means 99% of the things being purchased, produced, uh, will, like dying Christmas trees, be dragged out and put in the trash heap, right? That we are a people that we spend a lot, but the invitation as we walk through Advent Conspiracy is what does it mean to give more? What does it mean to give in a way that's lasting? What does it mean to give in such a way that it doesn't just end up in next year's garage sale or on the trash heap. And in order to learn what it means to be a people that gives more and better gifts, we're going to look at this passage that was read this morning, and what we're going to do is we're going to examine the original, the ultimate, the great Christmas gift. Right, the, the reason that the world has been transformed, the reason that Christmas creates such a stir ultimately is because that was the moment in time in which God the Father gave his son. And what I want to do is just examine the actual giving of that gift and why it was so stunning and actually invite us to model our giving in, by looking at that ultimate gift. And so the call is going to be to give more and better gifts by looking at the ultimate gift. Three simple statements that are going to emerge from John chapter 1 for us. And the first is this. We're called to give more and better presence. And I'm spelling presence there not E-N-T-S, but E-N-C-E. To give more and better presence. Will you look back at the passage with me at verse 14? It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 14 explains that Jesus came and dwelt among us. Uh, It's been described in a number of different ways. That word is the very same word that is used throughout the scriptures to mean the tabernacle. That he tabernacled among us. That Jesus, the presence of God himself, came and cast a tent. He pitched his tent among the people of, of humanity and existed in their midst. Now, if you would allow me, I'd like to do about three minutes of biblical theology just to help us to understand that packed into that single word, I think you can tell the whole story of the Bible. Have you ever considered what is the story of the Bible? 
We hear it told to us in different ways. This one's particularly large, and uh, that's because you can know I'm so holy. It's really heavy. So you should be very impressed and think that uh, my word is to be trusted here. But this is the reality, that if I were to ask you the question, can you tell the whole story of the Bible in one word? I think a good one to go to is tabernacle. Let me do it like this. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, God showed up and he spoke to his people corporately for the first time. This was just before he gave the Ten Commandments. And in this exchange, God comes in glory and power on the mountain and he speaks and it says that the whole community heard and afterwards they went to Moses shaking and they said, don't let that happen again. We will die if we're exposed to the glory of God. And so Moses goes up on the mountain. He mediates the presence of God. He stands on behalf of the people and hears from God and God gives him a plan because the pressing question that emerges in this moment is this. How can a holy God live amidst a hopelessly broken and sinful people. How can that be? And his answer? The tabernacle. He tells Moses, go pitch a tent in the middle of of the people, and that's where my presence will live. And the people of God will, will live around that tent, and their life will take shape based off of what goes on in that tent. That tent becomes the temple when David prepares for it, and Solomon builds it. And then in the New Testament, all of a sudden we see that Jesus comes in this passage, and he tabernacles among us. Help me with this. Those uh, students of the Bible in the room, what happens in the temple when Jesus dies on the cross? The curtain is ripped from top to bottom and the presence of God that has been mediated within the tabernacle or the temple bursts out. And all of a sudden, we are described as the temple of God. Living stones being built into the temple of God. And then finally, in Revelation 21, the ultimate reality takes place. It says, now the presence of God shall dwell, tabernacle, among his people. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, the pressing question is, how can a holy God live with sinful people? And the answer is tabernacle. It's pitching a tent, being in their presence. God has gone to great lengths to be with us. This passage and this gift is the gift of presence. God saying, I will grow to any length to be with you. And do you know that that's, that's hardwired into humanity? The desire to be present, to be with. Uh, my, my three-year-old, Caleb, at times will, will wake up in the night from a bad dream, startled, screaming. You know, sometimes it's just one of those things where it's hard to get back to sleep. And I, if I go and spend time with him, it's this interesting reality that you can go and be in the room and I don't have to do anything. I don't have to say anything. I don't even have to be touching him. But just if I'm in the room, he'll calm down and go back to sleep. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this with a little one, but he'll even lay there with eyes closed and he'll be starting to fall asleep and then he'll just open one eye and go, okay, still there. And he's calm. And it's presence that allows him to finally breathe easy and go to sleep. But it's not just a childish reality. Those of you who uh, have experienced the joy of being married, you know, when I come home after a really long, hard day, there are times when maybe Jimmy Fallon's on, maybe he's not, but where all I need is to know that my wife is there. Maybe I don't have the emotional energy tonight to process everything that's going on. Maybe we're not going to talk about it, but just be there. Will you just sit next to me and we can just be present together? That is a 
profound gift because it's actually hardwired into humanity. We hunger for presence. I've spent years counseling young adults in this city, many of whom who long for marriage but are not yet married. And that's been an interesting conversation to have, this recognition that this deep hunger is not just merely for a sex life or a family or all of the things that we may assume are associated with that hunger. Oftentimes, it's just that reality. I don't want to go home at night and just be alone. I hunger for presence. We're made for it. The ultimate and original gift is the gift of presence in a real and a profound way. God has gone to great lengths to be present with us. Sufjan Stevens wrote a song, To Be Alone With You. And he captures it so beautifully. It's a song where he's talking about his own love, but then all of a sudden you realize that Sufjan, influenced by his relationship with Jesus, is really couching it in terms of what Jesus has done. He said, I'd swim across Lake Michigan I'd sell my shoes. I'd give my body to be back again in the rest of the room to be alone with you. To be alone with you. To be alone with you. And he says, you gave your body to the lonely. They took your clothes. You gave up a wife and a family. You gave your goals to be alone with me. You went up on a tree to be alone with me. That all of a sudden we see that the the stunning nature of the original gift was the gift of presence. And so I'd just like to pose this question this morning. How can we as a people give more and better presence this Christmas season? If that's the first reality of the ultimate gift, how can we participate in that? One, I would say this, resist the frantic cultural narrative. The Christmas season, for whatever reason, has become one of the busiest, where we are scrambling. We're trying to figure out how to buy more presents, E-N-T-S, to make sure everybody's cared for, and we end up giving less presents, E-N-C-E. We miss the real gift of Christmas. I would invite you to create space and to be with the people you love the most. Think of gifts that increase your presence, your capacity to be present. Uh, Husbands, maybe give your wife or or boyfriends, give your girlfriend, uh, give them dance lessons. Give them something that actually requires you to give more of yourself. It's really easy to buy something that doesn't require of you. But if you go and make yourself uncomfortable and give more of yourself to create personal connection, we're actually starting to step into a space where we're giving more and better gifts because we're giving part of ourselves. The truth is that as we, as we think of creative ways to give more of ourselves, we'll actually celebrate Christmas by creating deeper relationships, which is ultimately... What Jesus came to secure, deeper relationships here and deeper relationships here. Maybe it's giving an experience. Maybe it's uh, giving the gift to a neighbor of a lingering meal. Say, hey, this, this is a free coupon. You name the date. We will cook a three-course meal and buy a nice bottle of wine, and we will sit and we will linger. This is your Christmas present this year, and we'd love to do that. Do you see that that's giving more and fuller of yourself It's a different sort of gift that actually increases presence. Now we're starting to live in the realm that that God has called us to, uh, to give more and better presence. But it's not just just present. It's not just be in the room with me. If we look down at the conclusion of this passage in verse 18, we see that Jesus doesn't just want to sit next to us, but he wants there to be deep knowledge. Look at verse 18 with me. It says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him 
known. He has made him known. The second reality is not just give more and better presence, but give more and better connection. Let me explain. This verse 18 is a really interesting one because it's kind of like verse 1, and then it talks about God in two different ways. It's talking about God the Father and God the Son in the same verse. It's saying no one's ever known him, but the one who lived in his bosom has come and made him known. The Son has come to make the Father known. This is the story of the incarnation, such that by the conclusion of Jesus' ministry, he could say, if you have seen me, you know the Father. But this word to make known is the word exegesis. But it's, it's an interesting theological word, interesting to people who go to seminary and are kind of nerdy about these things, right? Exegesis, though, is the simple reality of this. This is my call in life, which is to live in the text, to try to make sense of what's going on inside of a text, and then to make it plain and produce it, to, to present it to people. That's exegesis, to take what's in and to make it plain. The scriptures say this, Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. He existed within the bosom of the Father. He got to know him deeply by spending eternity with him. He knows and is shaped by his character and is part of his triune reality. And then he emerges to make him known. Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. The idea is this. He didn't just come to pitch his tent in the neighborhood. But he came to really know and be known deeply, truly. And so we see that the gift of incarnation, as that starts to shape the way that we give, it's a gift not just of being present, but it's the gift of really knowing and being known. The truth is, this is the point where we draw back. This is scary, and we resist this. Because if you're present with someone and known by them, we all of a sudden begin to wonder if there will continue to be relationship on the backside of that. That if someone actually sees me for who I am, we may not continue to deepen this relationship. And so we actually manage this in a number of different ways. I think the first is this. We, we keep the connection pretty superficial. We say, okay, presence and connection, but my connection is going to exist right up here. Uh, men are particularly good at this. Um, the, way that I, the way that I've come to think about it and uh, reading about this is that we, we pedal in several different levels of communication. The first is cliche. That's the top level. Cliche is, how about that Texans game tonight, right? The Texans, I don't know, against Tom Brady on the, on the home turf, the big national stage. What do you think? We start talking about that. And we're very comfortable talking at cliche. Cliche is easy. And just below cliche is facts. Okay, so we're talking cliches. Now I start talking about the facts of what's going on in the world, what's going on in the city, what's going on at my job. I'll tell you, hey, this, this is where I work. This is what I do. What do you do? We've just dropped down a level, not just cliche, but we're sharing facts about the world that we inhabit. The truth is both of those things are pretty easy. We drop down a little bit lower, and all of a sudden we start to feel the twinge of discomfort. This is opinions. Okay, the facts that are going on, now I start sharing the opinions about those things. My opinions about how the city is running, what's going on politically, what's going on at work. This is the opinion that I have on that. And then if we are comfortable with those three, oftentimes that's where we draw a firm line. But the truth is the last two is where connection happens. Emotion and emotional reality. This is how I feel about my opinions that have to do with the facts that are oftentimes covered over by cliches. It affects me in this way. 
This is hard for me. I'm sad. I'm angry because this happened. I'm overjoyed. Sometimes we're just as uncomfortable with just naming the fact that I'm overjoyed because this is amazing. This fact and the way that it's... Because the truth is when we start to peddle an emotion, all of a sudden, what we find down at that bottom level, it's real vulnerability. Being known. Being known. And you see... We feel the tension as we start dropping down in relationships because I say, if I really express my emotions to you, they may be a little bit unruly. We may be in each other's presence and I may start sharing what's going on and all of a sudden I may have to deal with your tears and your frustration. If I open the door to being okay with emotion, this may get crazy in here. And all of a sudden we start trying to batten that back down and some of us can be married to someone for years. And all of a sudden get really comfortable at just existing in the top three stages and saying, I don't know if I want to regularly delve into emotion or to vulnerability. We may have friendships that we've cultivated, whole friend groups that are built totally off of cliche. We can be present with people while never actually connecting with them. We're actually very good at it. And you see, it's not just... It's not just by managing it in the superficial. The other reality that I think is very true for our day and age is that we manage it by our two-dimensional world. And what I mean by that is we let it be mediated by screens always. We'll actually be present with people. We will be with them, but then we will be texting or communicating or Instagramming with a whole world outside of them. So I want to be present with you, but I want to connect with them. We seek our presence and connection in different places because then we don't have to be exposed. And so I text and I Instagram and I manage this world that I get to manipulate and I get to be in control of, and it doesn't ever have to talk back to me if I don't want it to. I can just not check it if I don't want to. I don't have to deal with your real-time emotion and hurt and vulnerability, and so I just push it aside. And we become a people that are really good at presence and connection, but never letting them come together. The ultimate gift that Jesus delivers into the world is this. He's saying, I've created you for more, I've embodied more, and I'm inviting you into more. Would you give more and better gifts the gifts of presence and connection together. How can you give more and better connection? I would say in your moments of presence, this is my invitation to you this week. If you want to give more and better connection, in your moments of presence, you're sitting at the dinner table with a friend, a roommate, spouse, a child. There's presence. Would you introduce connection by turning all screens off asking good questions, and sharing honestly. It's so simple. It's so simple, but we let Christmas become, I have a hundred parties, I've got tons of gifts to buy, I've got to decorate, I've got to do everything. We run hard all the way up until the, night of, uh, until the morning of Christmas, exhausted and collapsed, with no real presence and no real connection. There's actually unspoken emotions and frustrations that are existing under the table for the whole family because of the way this has been going. And we've missed the real gift of Christmas. We think we've given so much because we're in debt because of the experience. I have spent a lot. I gave a lot. But we really didn't give much at all. We didn't give anything of ourselves. The invitation is to give more. To give better. To not let it be about a dollar sign, 
a credit card swipe, another thing that I don't need. But let's be present and connect in real ways, modeling our gift giving off of the ultimate and original. But there's a beautiful third reality that emerges from this passage, and I don't know if you feel it like I do, but, but I need this third reality. Because when we consider this progression of giving presence and giving connection, all of a sudden, if we really embrace this, this is going to be hard. The stuff I've been avoiding with this person that lives under the same roof as me, this long-term friend that I just want to appease by, by keeping at arm's length and handing the gift off to, all of those sorts of realities that we exist in, if we really embrace this sort of call to give more and better gifts, to give of ourselves, all of a sudden we realize that this could be really, really difficult. But there's something sandwiched between presence and connection in this passage. Will you look back with me at verse 16 and 17? It says this, For from him... From from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Can you say that with me? Grace upon grace. We'll do it one more time. Grace upon grace. Verse 17, he says, For, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The last reality in giving more and better gifts is not just that we give more and better presence and more and better connection, but we give more and better grace. Because where presence and connection come together, we are desperate for grace. We're desperate for grace. Because if you see me, but you don't just see me at the superficial level, you see me, I'm going to need you to show me grace. I need, I desperately need my wife to extend grace to me daily because I'm broken. And to be present and connected with me is to absorb my brokenness and vice versa. That's why we just rather manage it and manipulate it and push it off and be done with it. But the truth is that when we lean in, the deep sense of exposure from step one and step two, when, those, when that exposure emerges, we need something to cover us. And thanks be to God that the ultimate gift doesn't just come with with presence and connection. It comes with grace upon grace. I'll say it like this. If you're in Christ this morning, if you have placed your whole life trust in the crucified and resurrected tabernacle of God, Jesus, and you have relationship with him, this is what that means. You're already exposed. God sees you. He has come to be present with you, and he is connected with you, and he knows everything about you, even the parts of you that you experience deep shame about, guilt, embarrassment, that you don't want anyone to know. He already sees it. He sees that part of you, and he loves you. He doesn't draw back at the, at the shame or the guilt or the ugliness. He doesn't draw back. He actually leans in and he says, I embrace you at that moment. At your worst, I embrace you. If we experience that daily and deeply, do you know what that does to a soul? All of a sudden, if the only person's opinion and the whole universe that matters says to me, unchecked, 
unending affection and affirmation. I am finally free to be present and connected with other people because I'm no longer dependent upon your opinion for me, for my value. My experience of joy in the world, it's already situated elsewhere. And when that becomes a reality, to the point where it's grace upon grace, bubbling up out of your soul, now all of a sudden you will have the power and the capacity to turn to the next broken, shamed, hiding individual who might be sharing a bed with you and to flood grace over To say because it's bubbling up, grace upon grace is being shed to me by the one who loves me when I wasn't worthy of it. And so now I'm free to give it. All of a sudden, we can be the sorts of people that are giving more and better gifts that are transformative. They're actually Christmas gifts. Follow me? They are Christmas gifts. They are flowing out of the person and the work of Jesus. The stuff that we buy, most of it, isn't really a Christmas gift. Right? It's, it's something that's a cheap counterfeit. But Jesus is saying, I want to usher you into something deeper and more beautiful and that we would be the sorts that give and receive in a way that is marked by the character of the one who came to tabernacle. You see, the invitation is to give more and to give better gifts. Give more and better gifts. It will only happen the degree to which you are soaking in and receiving the ultimate the completed work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And as you receive that grace upon grace, you will freely give presence and connection and you will experience the real joy of Christmas. Amen.